I'm going to summarize cognitive models for you so you don't forget. That'd be great. Okay, so number one, they're embodied. Nope, don't say that. They have implicit, you have implicit understanding. Thank you. With a cognitive model. Right. Okay. They provide basic little ca level categorization mm -hmm. and the opportunity for more abstract understanding later. Okay. Number three. Welcome back to episode five of Lessons Learned. This is our semi-new set. Uh, Evan I'm, has yeah. rearranged his room a little bit. That's yeah. Uh, yeah. So we're done addressing that. <laughs> um, yep. <laughs> welcome back. Thank you for being uh, with us until this is the second month. Technically, this is the fifth week, so that'd be the second month. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, are we? We are starting a new kind of content from the book, right? Yes, we are. Okay. All right. Yeah. Do you want to just go ahead and take off with that? Sure. This is going to be interesting. The first spot that we're going through is kind of intro. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, it's actually the introduction to the myth section. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be setting the groundwork pretty much for how he's looking at myth. Gotcha. The okay. way he's looking at it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'm ready if you are. Yeah, I mean, I'm as ready as I can be while you throw Jordan Peterson vocabulary right. and sentences I, at me. <laughs> I do think this stuff's easier. Okay. So we'll see if that actually turns out like it should. But, all right, here we go. We're on page 91. <laughs> page what? 91. 91, okay. Yeah, just for reference. <clears throat> it is reasonable to presume that over the long run, our species forgets most things that are useless. Mm -hmm. We do not forget our myths, however. Indeed, much of the activity broadly deemed cultural is in fact the effort to ensure that such myths are constantly represented and communicated. Um, I, I'm actually happy. I understood all of it, but I'm still going to let you break it down. Okay. Because either I've gotten smarter or the text has gotten a little easier. It's easier here. Okay. It's easier here for sure. I'm no smarter than I was before. It won't necessarily stay easier, Okay. I think. But basically what he's saying is that he sees myths as like cultural stories um, that are constantly represented and communicated. Yeah. So I think he's seeing myths more broadly than just actual, you know, like Greek mythology or Norse mythology or anything like right. that. He's... Yeah, he's seeing it as not only these things that we're always representing um, and interacting with each other in stories that we tell and stuff, but he assumes that we forget everything that's not useless, which is yeah. an important presupposition that he's making, because then everything that he focuses on as a myth, he's going to assume that it's highly important for some reason. Mm -hmm. So keep that in mind. Well, it's really interesting because... He opens with that we inherently forget things um, that are useless, right? Yeah. That is, it's it's key that he opens with that because then he follows it with that we never forget our myths. Mm -hmm. um, and I know 
today, Jordan Peterson, where it, I mean, I still don't even have a pin on where he sits in regards to faith. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting that even at this time of the writing and writing of the book, he kind of makes a point to kind of say that there's a little bit beyond there. There's something more to these myths, um, than just like useless information or useless mm-hmm. stories. And I mean, removing ourselves from Christianity, let's look at something like Norse myths, mm-hmm. which is something you and I are rather fond of. We like the Norse stories. That was like their moral system. They had right. honor. They had a way to fight. They had a reason to fight. I mean, mm-hmm. we're watching, um, well, we were watching that show of Vikings and I've read parts of, um, I want to sit down and actually read it, but Neil Gaiman's um, Norse mythology book, right. which is, a fantastic book if you have not read it neil gaiman's norse mythology great book but um he talks about all of norse mythology and um there's codes and there's rules and stuff and for those that don't understand the idea is that there isn't a heaven there is a valhalla and you only get to valhalla if you die at war if you if you die in combat mm-hmm. so that's a moral for them they have to That's like a whole code is that they actually do have to try their very hardest in battle and die while trying their hardest. Yeah. That is how they have to live. So it's – I know that's probably a little bit removed from the point he's getting at. But I think Mm. just trying to remove ourselves from just the Christian perspective and look at how myths have affected culture and society and stuff heavily, heavily. It is Mm – I don't think – ever are myths at least in this sense referencing religion and beliefs mm-hmm. um have they ever been anything less than important and even the people like today that oppose christianity they're opposing it so harshly because it's an important thing in society does it make sense sure i think i see what you mean yeah so because if it was useless if they really truly thought it was useless then they'd just be like it'd be ignored yeah they'd be like whatever or it'd be care. the same way that we talk about things like greek mythology now Mm-hmm. But it's not, mm-hmm. and it's been around for Christianity's been around for three thousand years. Yeah, with the Old Testament, and on top of the Judeo-Christian mm-hmm. value system in our society still to this day. Yeah, so it had. I think some, that's part of his point. Yeah, there's some gravity there, and an important gravity. Yeah, so that's a good starting point. Some of these are just going to be claims that he makes. Mm-hmm. So that's what this one is. It's pretty short, but it's a claim that's important to understand for the context of the book. He, in this section, he's talking quite a bit about Carl Jung and his idea of the collective unconscious. So that's something we'll get into in a little bit, but it's important to understand Jung for just because he's a big influence on Jordan Peterson and a lot of his thinking here. So, and you'll see how that is with these quotes. So this one, Jung believed that religious or mythological symbols sprung from a universal source whose final point of origin was biological and heritable. Hmm. So he thought that all of these symbols that we see, you know, like the cross, Jesus Christ, all of these things, he thought they were inherently biological. Interesting. And he doesn't go into much depth on what that actually looks like. Yeah. But it's, I think it's something to keep in mind. And so now I can talk about the collective unconscious, if you understand that quote. Oh, I understand that quote. I just think it's a very uh, dangerous presupposition to be making. Mm. Well, I think, and he talks about how a lot of people 
with the collective unconscious, they don't understand what it means. Mm-hmm. Because Jung's books are really confusing and hard to read. Yeah. So he does a good job describing it. I didn't go through and pick any quotes from him explaining it, like all of the nuances, I guess, of it. Sure. But I do have a definition of it mm-hmm. that he wrote down. So I'll give you the yeah, definition of collective go unconscious. For it. The collective unconscious that constitutes the basis for shared religious mythology is, in fact, the behavior, the procedures. Oh, he doesn't have any in there. The behavior, the procedures that have been generated, transmitted, imitated, and modified by everyone who has ever lived everywhere. Hmm. So, when Jung describes the collective unconscious, he's pretty much saying that it's a. Well, it's a collective memory that's passed on right. in between generations. Mm-hmm. And people are like, no, that's stupid. You can't pass on memories. Right. Um, Which is my initial thought right now, but I'm curious. Right. I think these men are seldom to make an accusation like that without. No, yeah. He So basically what he's saying is, and this is the, the part that Jordan takes a long time to explain, is that. It's pretty much in the behaviors that we pass down this collective memory. Okay. That makes more sense. Because it would be like one generation of people sees all the behaviors that their parents do. Mm -hmm. And they inherit those behaviors. Yeah. And the stories and stuff that they tell. And then they have kids and they spread that to the next generation. Well, it's kind of like what I was talking or what we were both talking Mm -hmm. about last episode about community. Dude, I found a quote for you. Oh. That talks about adults and children. Oh, that's okay. Is that, are so, we getting that to that a little later? I was just going to give it to you right now. It's okay. not one that we can talk about too much. Okay, sure. In my opinion, but. Then, yeah, then just lay it on me. Uh, adults embody the behavioral wisdom of their culture for their children. Yes. Which is just what we've been talking about. Right. And I think it's interesting because what what they're saying at face value is a very like obscure and arguably easily destroyed concept that we can pass down memories. Mm-hmm. But at its core, as they've explained it, they're not wrong at all. Like not even a little bit, but it's exactly what we're talking about where like our experiences will be reflected in our children. Mm-hmm. So like people that, you know, I, I'm, I have nothing against people with tattoos. Yeah. <laughs> Let me put that out there. I want to get a tattoo numerous you want to get a tattoo but for sake of examples if you grew up and maybe there was a bully in your life or maybe you saw something bad happen maybe even consistently from people with tattoos you would pass that memory down to your kids in the sense of like anybody with tattoos you avoid or have hesitancy towards Mm -hmm. your kids are going to pick up on that and then that becomes a continuous memory that's passed down yeah and that that can be powerful in in both a good and a bad sense. And yeah, so here's the important thing about that that relates to the myths mm-hmm. is that what he says in that collective unconscious quote is that it constitutes the basis for shared religi- religious mythology. Mm-hmm. So pretty much what he's saying is we have all of these behaviors in common and experiences in common, mm-hmm. which is what allows these religious mythologies to exist. Because we can kind of understand the world in similar ways. Yeah. Hmm. So, but I'll I'll go through each of those verbs that he uses there. 
Sure. So generated, mm -hmm. um, the behavior is generated. So someone does it first. It's transmitted. So they tell someone else how to do it. Mm -hmm. It's imitated. So then people start copying that person because it's a successful behavior. Uh, and then it's modified by everyone else to make it better and better. Yeah. And that's exactly what he's talking about in the first quote when he's saying the things that aren't important or that are useless, those are forgotten. Because this yeah. is the process of transmitting these important behaviors to other people so that they can spread that on. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and hmm. then he'll get into, we'll go into it more with some of these other quotes, but what he's going to end up saying is that myths are the way that we pass on these behaviors. Yeah, I mean, you're if you look at behavior from like a moral standpoint, mm -hmm. like as as Christians, like our behaviors generally generally strongly reflect our moral and religious beliefs. Most importantly, um, you know, do unto others as you would wish done unto you, mm -hmm. right? So that is behavior that's reflected from our you know, Christian religious standpoint. And that, I mean, that can be exemplified throughout almost everything we do mm -hmm. because that's just like our belief system. So it's interesting because I'm, and maybe I'm taking it a little bit out of context, but I think it's a good thought anyways. Um, society today is trying to diminish that and replace it with self-importance, which mm -hmm. goes into like, Carl Truman's rise and triumph of the mind right. self. But I think that's an important point to bring up in this regard, because as our, as the memories are passed down, you know, through religious beliefs and mm -hmm. stuff, it it's crucial for us because that's how we need to treat each other. That's how we need, that's how we show each other grace and how we show each other forgiveness and stuff. But in a society that's trying to dismantle that, not because it's useless, but because it is important and they see the importance of that. And it's hard to control people that are, um, look to a higher power. Yeah. Ultimately. I mean, who else, who else would we fear other than God? You know what right. I mean? Ultimately. Maybe, yeah. Ultimately, ulti truly. And ultimately, mm -hmm. you know, if, if we believe that in our death, we truly followed God and we truly gave everything to God that we could, there isn't a fear of death because, you're going to heaven, you know? Um, and again, not for us to judge, but that's, that's what we believe. You know, what, what is there to fear other than God itself and the punishment that could come from that? Right. So and if you have that kind of society, it's very hard to tell people what to do and what to believe. It's a lot easier if you say this is bad and you destroy it. Mm -hmm. And then you start saying you need to believe in yourself and only yourself and find meaning in yourself. Well, it's hard to do that. If you close out everything that you've been taught and everything that, you know, all those memories that were passed on to you, they're, you know, those behaviors are passed to you for a reason. If you shut that out, you're basically saying, I want to fail. Yeah. So I think, I think this is why Jordan brings up Nietzsche mm -hmm. towards the beginning of the book when he's saying that without God, there's no justification for the moral structure. Yeah. Because then there's no quote-unquote myth mm -hmm. there's no stories that are demonstrating these behaviors but then you're still trying to make the behaviors important but you have no justification to do so mm -hmm. so then this whole structure is on super shaky foundations right it's it's wild <laughs> i we said this last episode jordan peterson's 
incredibly good at abstracting from what we understand and explaining mm-hmm. like the why to our how and what mm-hmm. it's just it's really good and it, it's awesome because it creates conversations like this yeah which are like can create like true fundamental understandings of our why which gives us a better understanding of how to uphold those mm-hmm. you know yeah for sure so next he talks about going into categories or how we understand the world through categories mm-hmm. because it makes it way easier to understand things um, if you're not trying to keep everything separate so this is a quote kind of explaining that and this is also important for the whole idea of narratives and having some abstract story that can apply to multiple different things mm-hmm. that's why it's important to have categories so he says the act of categorization enables us to treat the mysterious and complex world we inhabit as if it were simpler, as if it were in fact comprehensible. We perform this act of simplification by treating objects or situations that share some aspect of structure, function, or implication as if they were identical. Hmm. Okay. So one example, I think I think I included a quote about it later but I can bring it up now as it's a way to understand this is pretty much like think of a chair. Yeah. How would you define it? Like how would I define a chair? Yeah. Um, I, and maybe I'm ruining your point because we're sitting in obscure chairs. It doesn't have four legs. Um, I guess a chair and my definition would be something that supports and is designed for a single singular individual to sit on with the ability to lean back in comfort. Sure. Okay. Well, let's see. Oh, did I not save the quote? That's okay. Pretty much what he says is that we like to define things mm-hmm. according to, or we like to think that we define things according to the objective thing that they are. Mm-hmm. But what he posits here is that we actually define things in relation to how they impact us. Yeah, which is exactly what I just did. Right. That's going to be the more accurate way of doing it because he points out in the story, like, you could consider a tree stump a chair if you're sitting on it mm-hmm. and that doesn't have legs or a back or anything. Yeah. And it's because it is... um. It's something you can sit on. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know where I was going to go with that. No, but I think but... it's like you you brought up a good point to that we really define things by their impact on us. I mean, like, I can't think of anything that you wouldn't define how it impacts you. I mean, like, define a light. It lets me see. Something that illuminates a right. room to allow me to see. But you don't say it's an LED, you don't say it's a candle. No, or like a flame or a filament. Or, or... something that's on the ceiling. Right. Or um, the sun, for that matter. Or like a bed is a comfortable place to lay down. Mm-hmm. And while I didn't say comfortable for me or anything, a comfortable place to lay down, those all impact me. Those don't impact bugs. Those don't impact like your blanket. That's mm-hmm. not changing your blanket This because it's, it's not your bed. bed. It's yeah. right. So I think that it, it reminds me of um, something that I was told is a Midwestern thing, mm-hmm. 
but I find that hard to believe as I've met you and Emma and, and I know you guys are true Coloradoans. Um, is that what you're called? Coloradoans? Coloradans? Probably Coloradan. You say it's so weird. Um, but um, I was told that Midwestern people uh, describe distance by the time. No, you do that by do you do that here? Yeah, you have to here because when you're going through the mountains, uh huh, distance is stupid. Yeah, it's what 256 miles. That means nothing when it's just you know back and forth through the mountains. Right, it's four hours. Yeah, but it's the same thing back in the Midwest, like back where I live. It's it's a dirt road and it goes 50 miles that way, and my friends 30 miles in. Well, how I don't care how far it is. That doesn't mean anything to me. How long is it going to take me to get there? And maybe that's like a younger generation thing. Mm. Or maybe it's just misinformation. It could be. Yeah. I don't know anyone that says like, oh, it's 15 miles away. No. How, how, how long? long? Does it take? Yeah. I don't care how far it is. Yeah. I, how long is it going to take me to get there? Because if it's 15 miles in the middle of Cleveland, that's right. going to take me like five hours. Yeah. But if it's 15 miles back home, it's going to take me like 16 minutes, mm-hmm. 10, if we're being honest. Yeah. So who knows? I yeah. don't know. But it reminds we me of that. do that. Right. So it reminds me of that because I want to know how long it's taking me to get there because that's what's impacting me. The distance mm-hmm. doesn't impact me. The time impacts me. I'd argue the distance does impact you, but not knowing it. What do you mean? Well, if it's further away, then it takes you longer. Well, no, because of exactly what you said. If it's 256 miles through curvy roads, mm-hmm. it'll take you four hours. If it's 256 miles... Through straight shot, it'll probably take you an hour and a half. Mm, you know what fair. I mean? So distance well, is no, irrelevant. Well, no, because it's 256 miles on the roads. Yeah. So it would be less than 256 miles if it was a straight shot. No, no, no. But I mean, if you took that length of road mm-hmm. and straightened it. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. I think it would take about the same, though. No, it would I'm going like 70 miles an hour, 75 anyways. Right. But you're also you're not also doing that with between traffic, between like taking the turns. There's so many turns that say 55. Uh huh. But you don't do that. I do that. I don't want to roll a car. It's safe to go like 10 over. It's not 10 over the yellow. Yeah. No. You can do that. Yeah. I I mean in a sedan, every time we get in your jeep, I like my heart's like, I don't skip a beat because I know you're not a bad driver or anything, mm-hmm. but I'm just like. Hmm. I don't think I'd go that fast. <laughs> Whatever, it's fine. I'm always looking at your speedometer. I'm like, that's an interesting speed to choose for this turn that's coming up. That turn's coming really fast. It's never a problem. We've never crashed. All right, Jordan Peterson. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this one's going to be a bit different. Okay. We're talking about cognitive models because it's going to matter. Okay. So I'll read this first thing. He doesn't really define it, but it has a cognitive model has six properties, mm-hmm. and we're going to just kind of crash course through each of those Okay. so you can understand what a cognitive model is. Okay. So, let's see. He's saying if you don't have the ability to like see things objectively, mm-hmm. then people naturally incline towards the development of what has been described as a cognitive model. So a cognitive model is something that people will use if they aren't able to think about things objectively. 
like an objective world that just exists on its own. So, okay. Is that, does that mean, because you and me think about most things objectively, or at least we take objective, like objectified views into consideration. Well, I don't think that's possible because we're subjective. It's like seeing I, the... I'm closer to understanding what you're saying. It's like seeing a tree. Yeah. And it's just a tree. That's objective. Oh, because but, we're but, humans and we see how things relate to us. So, well, what he talks about, yeah, basically, is okay. that we see how it, how Jordan Peterson would say it, is they would see the world as it, as what it signifies, aka as a place of moral action, where everything impacts us morally speaking, because they didn't have that objective world. Okay. We can't be objective because we're people, like we're humans. Like that's, truly. I think that's part of his argument is that okay. we can't escape that subjectivity. Yes. Because we're always looking for meaning. Mm -hmm. But we can still say that that tree is just a tree. Right. Someone like maybe back in the Middle Ages would have said it represents something. Yeah. It represents life. It impacts me in some moral way. Sure. Okay. So that's kind of a cognitive model. Okay. And it's it's not very clear here, which is why I'm going through these six properties. Gotcha. Because that'll okay. help it make a lot more sense. Okay. 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 So, number one is cognitive models are embodied with regard to their content, which essentially means that they can be used without necessarily being defined or they're implicit in action without necessarily being explicit in description. And he provides an example for that because that's pretty confusing. Yeah. So, if you're asked, what makes a dog? Okay. What, what I would say, I would agree with what he says, you might say, I can't say but I know when one is around. Yeah. You couldn't just define a dog, especially in a way that could differentiate it from a wolf or a hyena or a cat. Yeah. It'd be really hard to do that. But you know a dog when you see it. Yeah. So that's what it means when it's embodied. It's some implicit understanding. <laughs> okay. Okay. Implicit understanding. That's what stands out to me. That's what yeah. my brain is understood. Okay. So that's number one. Cognitive okay. models are embodied. Of six. Yes. Yeah. Number two, they're, okay, this one's fun. They're characterized by basic level categorization and basic level primacy. These terms mean, respectively, so this is basic level categorization, that the phenomena most naturally apprehensible to the human mind, perceptible as a whole, or gestalt, nameable, communicable, manipulatable, memorable, serve as material for the initial categorization and that those initial oh the camera turned off welcome back from technical difficulties um i was in the middle of a crisis while evan read part two of what is cognitive, cognitive model cognitive model i don't even remember the title of the thing we're talking about we're already on part two yeah what's number one uh, implicit understanding. Sure. It's embodied, but yeah, that's the same thing. No, you said implicit understanding was okay. Oh, yeah, but he's calling it um, being embodied. I don't care what he calls it. Okay, well, okay, so the this one is two things. So basic level categorization, mm -hmm. which is phenomena that most naturally apprehensible to the human mind, um, serve as material for initial categorization. And then basic level primacy, which I think is easier to understand, mm -hmm. that those initial categories 
provide the basis for the development of more abstract concepts. So basically these, these uh, cognitive models, so they, let's see, they serve as material for initial categorization. So they let you categorize things really quickly. Okay. So you could see a new type of dog and say, that's a dog. Yeah. You don't know any specifics about it, but it's a dog. So wait, my implicit understanding allows me to do part two. Which is basic level categorization. Okay. You should have just started with that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm just reading his quotes, okay? And then <laughs> after basic level categorization comes basic level primacy. And primacy just means that your initial categories provide the basis for you to develop more abstract concepts. Is that part three? No, that's two. Both of those are part two. Yikes. Okay. So does that make sense? So there's there's implicit understanding, and then there is... Which allows for categorization. And then categorization allows for basic categorization, and then... And primacy, basic level primacy. What's basic level primacy? Mm -hmm. Which pretty much means that your initial category that you have uh -huh. of understanding, it's super simple and stuff, but it's going to allow you to develop a more abstract concept. We're going to pretend I completely understand that. Okay. And we're going to go on to the next thing, and hopefully I'll understand it. This is how I treat most of my classwork when I do it. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, question three. It's not a question. Part three. But part three. Question. It's a question for me. Yeah, so this one, the words are tough, so we'll just go for the meaning. Wait. They may be used in metonymic or reference point reasoning. So metonymic reasoning is symbolic. Uh, metonymic means interchangeable and more. Um, all you need to know about this one is that the fact that objects in a cognitive model have metonymic properties means that any or all of them can stand for any or all of the others. Pretty much he's talking about metaphors. Why don't why doesn't he just say that? Because he has to provide all the context so that you can say instead of just saying, yeah, we're good at metaphors. But we it's are. he's being extremely precise. Not only are we good at metaphors, any object can stand in for any or all others. Metaphorically speaking. Oh, yeah. Of which course. is how like a narrative works. Yeah. Because you're taking something specific and it's an abstract that can represent a bunch of other things. Is that kind of like animated movies where mm -hmm. like humans are replaced with like animals? No, that's just anthropomorphism. Well, I mean like it, like, yes, I completely understand and agree with you. And we're going to go on to part five, four, four, oh. halfway there. This one's pretty simple, I think. And it's kind of, it's related to categories. I hope so. So, cognitive models are characterized by membership and centrality gradients, which sounds really difficult. But basically all it means is that a thing can be better or a better or worse exemplar of its category. Okay. For example, you could say like uh, a robin is more of a bird than an ostrich. Yes. That's it. 
But I, uh, man, I'm having a hard time tying back, tying that back into what you just said. Like, yes, I understand that. Totally makes sense. It's that things can be a better or worse example of a category, but it still belongs in that category. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, yes. Is that what you said? I explained it a little bit more this time. I was just quoting him. Okay. But that's what it means by membership. So it has membership in a category. Mm-hmm. Um, or it puts things in a membership with a category. Okay. And the centrality gradients. He doesn't technically define that, but I imagine that all that means is if you take a robin, that would be much more central, mm-hmm. like a central example of a bird. Yeah. And an ostrich would be like way out on like the fringes of what it means to be a bird. Yeah. I assume that's just what he mean by centrality gradients. Yeah, oh yeah, that so. I would agree with that. On the one of the few things I understood so far, yes. Okay, so that's number four. Number five. They contain phenomena associated as a consequence of familial resemblance. So pretty much that just means that things share similarities with a potentially hypothetical object, which I didn't understand too much, but he has a good example here. So if you have a family with a bunch of brothers mm-hmm. and their dad looks different than i mean they all look different right because they're a family but they look similar right so just his example there is none of their brothers precisely resembles another but if you saw them in a group you would say those men are all related yeah that's it you know okay next one next one number six Yep. This one's the coolest one. We're at six. This one's the coolest one. It's it's cool. I like it. Okay. So cognitive models give rise to the phenomenon of polysemy or polysemy. I don't know how to say it, but I'm going to go with polysemy, um, which he says is a defining characteristic of myth. So a polys- polysemic story is written and can be read validly on many levels. I think I understand, but I... Here's an example that will for sure make you understand. Yeah. And it's in the book, so all I have to do is quote it. Yay. The struggle of Moses against the Egyptian pharaoh, for example, to take a story we will consider later, can also be read as an allegory of the struggle of the oppressed against the oppressor, or even more generally, as the rebellion of the world-destroying savior against society. So it's okay. it's just, you know, abstraction and metaphors, basically. Yeah. You can take the same story and get multiple levels of meaning out of it. Right, okay. So that's a cognitive model. So, to recap... I understand how you feel when I talk about, like, car engines or, like, motorcycle engines. When I'm just like, yeah, so, like, then the crankshaft spins the canshafts and that's what opens up the valves so the pistons are firing and exhausting at the right time. And that's just how engines work. And you're just like, stop talking. I understand that struggle now. I understand your feelings. Yeah? Yes. Well, I'm going to summarize cognitive models for you so you don't forget. That'd be great. Okay, so number one, they're embodied. Nope, don't say that. They have implicit, you have implicit understanding. Thank you. With a cognitive model. Right. Okay. They provide basic little ca- level categorization mm-hmm. and the opportunity for more abstract understanding later. Okay. Number three, um, they can be metaphorical. So they don't just have to be literal. They can represent other things than what they actually literally are. Right. 
number four. Part of the categories that you use is that things can be a better or worse exemplar of his category. Mm-hmm. So they don't have to all be the same thing to be in the same category. Right. Um, similarly with number five, uh, they have familial resemblance. Mm-hmm. So they have some sort of similarity with a potential object. Which allows you to categorize them if they were together. but Even if they're not exactly the same. Exactly, yes. And then number six, uh, a polysemic story is written and can be read on validly on many levels. Yes. So they can be literal and multiple different levels of metaphor or abstraction. Ab- yeah, yep, that's exactly what I was going to say. So that's a cognitive model. Okay. That's important for the rest of the book because <laughs> this is pretty much where he's coming from to understand myths. So he's seeing them as these stories that help us categorize different things, that provide basic level abstraction, that provide opportunities for higher abstraction, and that represent multiple things at the same time. Like, I understood what you said. Like, I'm not, like, totally dumbfounded and lost. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm just, like, how much of this cognitive model, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. How much of this cognitive model do I act like actually need to like conscientiously think about through the reading of this book? I don't think you need. I think it'll stick with you well enough. Okay. Just to understand that this is how he's seeing myths. Okay. There's. I definitely have some questions, but I'm sure they're going to be answered. Well, you can hit me with them now. Well, it's just more like how how using the word. And with my understanding of the word myth in regards to this book, referring to more specifically like Christianity mm-hmm. and more modern, yeah, like modern religions, religions that have it like stuck to this day, how is he seeing basic level categorization from the Bible? So I think the basic level would be probably the most literal sense mm-hmm. of the Bible. Um. Like the categorization of the books? So like, no, it would be like Jesus Christ actually being just Jesus Christ. Like being someone that was on the earth. Okay. And he he's like a person that's walking and talking and doing things. Right. That's that basic level. But then you can abstract that and say he's also someone that represents the greatest tragedy that could ever exist. Right. And he represents this thing that brings the logos into the world for our understanding. Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. Okay. That makes me feel a little bit more confident about like where this is going to go. It'll be really interesting what he gets out of the different myths moving forward. Yeah. I'm really curious about that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really curious. I don't know all of them that we're going to go through, but I know it's going to start with something called the uh, Anuma Elish, which is a Sumerian myth. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't think it's their creation myth, but it's involved kind of with creation. I think it's a little bit after their creation. But it's about Marduk and him being this god that ends up fighting Tiamat, who's a female dragon that like represents chaos and destruction. Is this in the Bible? No. Okay. This is Sumerian, which is like pre-Bible. Oh. I'm... I feel like I'm just so continue. I'm lost in my own thoughts. Just No, it's a lot. Just keep 
paving the road. That's that. That's why I thought this section would be pretty dense, is because he's really laying the groundwork for understanding these myths. I was hoping that the groundwork was behind us. I think that's the densest stuff. I think there might be a little bit more groundwork, but that's like... Sure. And you know, we started this episode so strong. What and I was so like... You were talking, and I was like, yeah, I understand this. Like I, I... told you I thought it got harder. <laughs> no! Oh, man. I was... Like, I thought I was going to have a redeeming moment. Like, last episode, I was just like, explain everything to me. Mm-hmm. And then we started, and I was like, no, I'm good. I'm big boy now. And then you started talking about cognitive model, and I was like... Is this what it's like to feel stupid? No, this was a tough section. Yeah. These cognitive models were rough. That was... But they're super cool. So... Yeah. Going off of cognitive models, I found the quote for the chair thing. Yes. That we talked about earlier. Yes, yes, yes. So yes. here's that. And now you can actually... You can understand the chair thing kind of in context of the co- cognitive models. Okay. So he says, We presume without thinking that we group things as a consequence of something about them rather than as a consequence of something about us. Mm-hmm. But so he's arguing that we do actually categorize yeah. things according to how they affect us. Um, and then his example of the chair is a tree stump, a chair. Yes. If you can sit on it, it isn't really something about an object considered as an independent thing that makes it a chair. It is rather something about its potential for interaction with us. The category chair contains objects that serve a function we value. Yeah, and I mean, my only, like, really kind of, like, my first critique. Okay, sure. Um, I wouldn't say, like, I wouldn't look at a tree stump and go, that's a chair. I'd say that's a place to sit, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't say it's a chair because it lacks the things that yeah. I have already described. And maybe that's just a me thing, but I seldomly know people, I don't know anybody personally, that looks at a tree stump and goes, ah, a chair. Mm-hmm. So much as they go, oh, I can sit there. Right. And so, that, like, it, it doesn't diminish his point. No, and I think I agree with you. This might be where he brings in the centrality gradients mm-hmm. and say, that's just a worse exemplar of a chair. Yeah. But it still ex- is a chair. Extreme outlier. Of the graph. Yeah. Yeah. So that's probably what he would say. But I think I agree with you. I don't find it to be the most convincing example. Yeah. But I think it gets his point across. I think it is true, Mm -hmm. at least to a certain extent. Yeah. That we do value thing, or we do group things based on how we value them. If he had just said, like, a seat, he would have sold me. Sure. Because, like, define a seat. Mm -hmm. A place to sit. Because a seat could be a stool, it could be a chair, it could be like a car seat, you know, or it could just be a tree stump. Right. I think that's where, if mm. he had said, like... chair might have just a more specific connotation. Yeah. And yeah. maybe it's just because that's how we see it, or maybe that's just from the times in which he was writing that. It was a lot easier, like, there wasn't so many um, linguistical differences yeah. as that we have today. Mm-hmm. So maybe, but his point still stands. I think he makes a good point. Yeah, not the most convincing example. Yeah. So, for this next quote, do you want me to read it, or 
do you want to skip it? It's kind of talking about the same thing we were just talking about, about classifying things. I just thought it was a good quote. Go for it. Okay. We classify things according to the way they appear, the way they act, and in accordance with their significance to us, which is an indication of how to act in their presence. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think maybe that actually that last part of that does add something. Yeah. Which is it tells us how to act. I think that's something that's pretty key. Yeah. What do you think? Well, uh, do you think we need to break that down at all? No, I don't think we need to break it down. Okay. Um, I guess it's, I think of like a, a more funny example. Sure. That's not really funny because it's real, but. Okay. Um, think about the, uh, like the airplanes that fly over the like Amazon jungles and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they fly past like tribes, yeah. That have that have no idea what a plane is, yeah. So they attack it. Mm-hmm. So like, they have no idea how to act or react to that mode of transportation. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Okay. And like, I'm gonna tie that back to like us in the sense that like our modern day technology, and I refer to that includes like cars and homes and stuff. Sure. Is like because we were um, like we just grew up with it, for lack of a better term. Um, we just grew up with with it. It was very implemented into our lives. It was streamlined into our lives. So we always know how to interact with things. Um, versus if we were to go back in time, I'm sure they'd have things that we would be like, "What is this?" Or even like now, um, analog clocks. Younger kids, mm-hmm. they're not teaching them how to read analog clocks. I, I don't remember when they stopped. I think your brother's grade or the year younger than him. Okay. So three years, I think, is when they stopped teaching that. Mm. So the class of 2022? Yeah. I think it was class of 21 or 22. And I, I'm sure it varies. And I'm sure there's yeah. other places yeah, that yeah. still do teach it. But it's, it's generally speaking, been removed from the curriculum. So I have no idea how to – they, they can't tell you. They have not a single clue. Yeah. And I think it's just interesting because it's like, it clearly demonstrates like the removal of uh, the importance of an object as times progress Mm. or arguably as times regress. Because if we were to go like, if there was a huge solar flare and it knocked out all technology and stuff, you know, count 20, 30 years, nobody's going to know how to use like a phone. Because, like, there's no electricity. There's no technology being used. So how are you supposed to understand it? Mm-hmm. Which I'm sure I'm not necessarily adding anything to what's being said so much as I'm just... Well, I think the um, something to take away from what you're talking about is people wouldn't know how to act in the presence of a phone. Yeah. You know? I think that that's why those Amazon tribes that would yeah. attack a plane would attack it is because it's something big and loud... And they haven't seen it before. Yeah. Which means probably dangerous. Yeah. I guess my ultimate point is that sometimes it's, um, I can't think of the word, but like uh, not refreshing, but kind of like a eye-opening. It's mm-hmm. sometimes eye-opening to think about situations like that, both in the fact that an individual could see a plane as nothing more than like useless, almost scary thing. Sure. At the same time, being an individual that has no concept of a plane and then trying to grasp the idea of like seeing a plane for the first time 
And like as somebody who's like flown on a handful of planes at this point, especially mm -hmm. from college and stuff, they're loud and they smell awful and just like both on both ends of the spectrum, not having not known what a plane is, is like they're spooky. But on the other hand, meeting an individual who has no concept of it, <laughs> I, I just think it's a really eye opening way of like viewing the reality of the world in which we live in and the uh, the widespread demographic of people that inhabit this planet. Yeah. And I think that something he talks about in here is the idea that we live in a largely different world mm -hmm. from the people that were creating those myths. So they had to learn how to act in the presence of unknown things or even known things in a very different way that we did. Yeah. Which I think is very important for how he's going to interpret stuff later. Gotcha. Okay. So next one yeah so we're gonna talk a little bit more specifically about how he sees myths and kind of how they're structured what they're made up of mm -hmm. so the partially implicit mythic stories or fantasies that guide our adaptation in general appear to describe or portray or embody three permanent constituent elements of human experience so what he's saying is mythic stories um, describe or embody three elements of human experience, mm -hmm. which is the unknown or unexplored territory, right? the known or explored territory, and the process or the knower that mediates between them. Mm, interesting. Okay. So he thinks that at a fundamental level, all myths will have some sort of representation of the known, the unknown, and the knower. So, you're staring at me. <laughs> I just think it's cool. I think my brain crashed. Um, it crashed in a plane that I didn't know how to pilot. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean it's so. Hmm. I have no comment. At least at this second so if something's okay. on your mind go ahead and take over no i don't know if there <laughs> is too much to talk about that i mostly included that just because i think it's an important thing to understand mm -hmm. is that he's going to focus on the known the unknown and the knower okay for a lot of these myths especially the creation myths that's oh. something he's going to bring up okay and i know he talks about it later i don't think i included any quotes about it but like he talks about how in a lot of these stories for example everything started in some sort of chaos. Yeah. Which was the unknown. Yeah. So that's just a really basic thing that's very similar between a lot of them. Well, we talked a while ago in episode two that God operates in chaos, mm -hmm. which is like wild. But... Yeah. Yeah. And huh. so I want to paraphrase this paragraph here because mm -hmm. I think it'll, it talks about pretty much why he thinks that this is important or why it's necessary that people have these mythic stories, mm -hmm. and maybe even why they carry on. So I'll read the first little bit, and then I can paraphrase. Um, no matter where an individual lives, and no matter when, he faces the same set of problems, or perhaps the same set of meta-problems, since the details differ, details differ endlessly. So he's cultural, so he has to come to existence with culture. Um, he must master the domain of the known, so he has to be able to have skills and survive in the known world, which is hard enough. 
um, which means he has to understand his role within his culture. Um, he must also be able to tolerate and benefit from the unknown um, or the unexplored territory. And finally, he must be able to adapt to the presence of himself, which is also, he sees it as the exploratory process or the limited mortal subject, which must serve as an, a mediator between the creative and destructive underworld of the unknown and the secure oppressive patriarchal system of human culture. So pretty much, he's saying that everybody has to be able to, at a fundamental level, survive in the known world, uh -huh. um, and survive in this culture and society that we're in, uh, survive in the unknown, and try to get something out of that, or at least not perish because of the unknown. Mm -hmm. um, and lastly, which I think is the hardest part, be able to understand the process of living in both of those at the same time, the known and the unknown, or right. the chaos and the order, Yeah, which is what his other two books are about. One of them is, uh, it's 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos, mm -hmm. so how to not let chaos take over. And then the next one is 12 More Rules uh, Beyond Order. Mm. So his whole thing is about, he thinks that the optimal way to live life is a balance where you have one foot in order so that you feel protected and secure, mm -hmm. and the other foot in chaos so that you're growing and exploring and learning new things. Interesting. So he thinks that's the fundamental story that it's a fundamental experience that we all share as humans. I think, and maybe he pointed this out, maybe this is exactly what you just said <laughs> and it went over my head, but like, that's exactly what we're supposed to do as Christians. Yeah. You know, like that's exactly what you're supposed to do mm -hmm. is you can't, you can't always be holding on to control in your life. You need to be letting go and letting God yeah. guide you and direct you but at the same time you can't just totally let go of life and be like god will fix it we you know mm -hmm. so yeah wow okay that's really i didn't i didn't know that i didn't i didn't catch that i'm glad you pointed that out but yeah so i think that's a super important quote or paragraph it wasn't a quote, yeah but i think that ties together the known and unknown mm -hmm. that we've been talking about for this whole book mm -hmm. that 90 or 100 pages at this point that we've been going through this yeah um, and I think it's a really good basis for his justification for the existence of myths. Gotcha. Because then you can put these stories in with behaviors that can tell people what's important in balancing between order and chaos. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Sweet. Okay. That's a good one. Let's see. This one's shorter. Mm-hmm. But I think you'll like it. Okay. <clears throat> we cannot see the unknown because we're protected from it by everything familiar and unquestioned. Mm. I think that's. Do you want to. Does that need to be explained? I can kind of go through yeah, it. Yeah, break, break it down a bit. Sure. Just a little. So, obviously, the first part we can't see the unknown mm -hmm. because we're protected from it by everything familiar and unquestioned. So, we can't see what's unknown because everything we're seeing is known yeah basically so like you it's it's an interesting paradox 
I suppose, or dichotomy. I don't know which one would be more accurate. Probably paradox. Uh, it's paradox. But you can't see the unknown, but you always know it's there, mm-hmm. which is super important. It's. Uh, it kind of sounds like um, edgy. Sounds like what? Edgy. Oh, edgy? Yeah, it sounds edgy. Yeah, dude. Honestly, there are some edgy ones in here that I thought about including. Like, I mean, just like read it from like 2000s punk rock. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the black hair. No, dude. You can't. You can see the unknown, but it's still like, it's unknown, man. I made this one. (laughs) It was supposed to be ironic, but I made this one post on Instagram back in high school. And I was on my way back from a field trip thing mm-hmm. with my friend Parker, and we both had on our we were at an academic team tournament, so we had on slacks and black button up shirts, and I had mine rolled up, and I had some aviators, mm-hmm. and we just sat on the seats of the bus, like on the top of the seat backs, mm-hmm. and I we just took a picture. Like, I had the shades on. It was dark outside, so there was no light coming through the windows, and the flash was on, and it looked really kind of dumb yeah uh and then i posted it my quote was all lowercase and i said we are the children of the bad revolution <laughs> and it was iconic and i'm still proud of it you are the bad revolution <laughs> in your heart that's what <laughs> oh man so i'd say yeah some of these quotes are on that level yeah i just a funny kind of observation yeah edgy dead um, so, yeah, anything else from that one? No, I mean, I think it, like, Paradox is pretty accurate description. It's, mm-hmm. I think it's more of, it's a difficult thing to wrap your brain around truly. Yeah. Um, I guess, I guess the best way, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the best way to kind of look at it is, like, if you were to, like, the unknown being, you know, the unknown, like, the thing yeah. you haven't done, um, I think simplifying it down to like you're meeting a new person or even better yet you have the potential to meet a new person Mm -hmm. so you see somebody in your class at like the chow hall or whatever and you and you recall oh they made a really good point sorry did you say chow hall yeah what is that (laughs) like the cafe like the cafeteria it's just cafeteria (laughs) no one says chow hall so Uh... Okay. Anyways, continue. I don't, I don't know if I'll ever be able to financially recover from this. Um, <clears throat> in the cafeteria. Wait, did you like? Is that something you say in Michigan? No. Do people just say Chow Hall? No. Why'd you say it then? Cause. Oh, okay. I have because Blake's in the Marines. Uh huh. And they call it the Chow Hall. Okay. So he said chow hall a bunch to me. So your friend said chow hall. Yeah. So now you say chow hall. When do I go to the cafeteria? They call it the calf here. I had 12 years of school and that wasn't called the chow hall. Wouldn't those 12 years override the... It was just called the lunchroom. Then I'd expect I you to say edit. lunchroom. I'm sorry that I, I was, offended no, you. Look, I'm not offended. I was just... I've never heard chow hall. I thought that was well, you can't say that anymore. You've entered the unknown and made it the known. It is known. Yeah. You're welcome. Yeah. So I'm going to move on to the next quote. No, because I didn't even make my point yet. All right, make your point. You got distracted by Chow Hall. That's on you. So. You used it. Whatever. 
So somebody in your class yep. makes a really good point, and okay. you see them later in the day in the cafeteria, and he better. And in that moment, you go, "Oh, like I would like to get to know this person," and that that is on you right there to enter that unknown. So you are aware of it; you can see the unknown, mm-hmm. but it is still the unknown because you haven't done it yet. Well, dude, let me hit you with a let me follow up with a perfect quote. Yeah, that. See, the unknown is intrinsically interesting. In a manner that poses an endless dilemma. It promises and threatens simultaneously. Endless dilemma is the description of the century. It's good, isn't it? That is... Wow. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. And it's true. It's... it's I'm back in the hot tub of knowledge. Yeah. I, I just use straight filler words for like five seconds. That's fine. For no reason. I could have just sat here in silence. That's true. <laughs> oh man. So yeah, I like that one. I think it's I think it's great at exemplifying what I feel a lot of people go through. Mm-hmm. You know, exact, exactly what I described. You're in the cafeteria and you're right. in the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. And and you see that individual and like it it's not inherently a bad thing to go talk to them. Like there's nothing wrong with talking about somebody, especially if you're like, Hey, like you made a really good point in class. Like, do you mind if I join you for lunch and we can kind of chat a little bit more? Mm-hmm. Um, like what a, I think that's a great way to like meet people. Yeah. You know, and I think this is really important in today's world because this is the issue with being risk averse mm-hmm. is that just because something can be threatening, people don't do it. Even if it's, removing all chance of promise yeah and i think that's pretty detrimental to how a lot of people live today especially when it's so easy to you know sit at home stay on your phone mm-hmm. don't do anything except watch tiktok it's so it's so sad i think this podcast is the ultimate example of like do what you want to do mm. because i've been wanting to be on youtube and and be a youtuber for an embarrassingly long time mm-hmm. and I've always, I've always been so hesitant because I was like, I don't want to do it alone or like, I, I don't want to do it and fail, you know, a hundred reasons to Sunday. But I mean, at the same time you came to me and you said that you were down to do a podcast because you felt like it, that's what you needed to do. You need to enter that kind of unknown to push mm-hmm. yourself beyond what you were already capable of. Get better at speaking. Yeah. 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 So I think this is the perfect example of get off your butt. And go do something that makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. I think this, like, not that we're both inherently uncomfortable right now. At least at first it was. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it, I mean, there's always the option of ridicule online and stuff like that. And I, I will take a negative comment right now. We have no comments. You heard him, everyone. I will take a negative comment. Go ahead. Fill them up. Um. We are almost out of time, and the camera battery is low. Oh, shoot, dude. They're How many do close. you have left? Well, let's see. I can I can pick a good one. Okay. Shoot, now there's so much pressure. Yeah. Okay. That one's not very good. <laughs> I have, like, four more quotes. I, I would sing, like, the Jeopardy kind of waiting song, but, like, I'm scared to get copyright claimed. I'm not saying, like, I'm an amazing singer or anything, but, like, I'm not... Like, my pitch isn't bad. Like, uh-huh. I would be in tune enough that we might get a copyright claim is my fear. Then just switch the key. What are you talking about? 
Or I could just sing it bad, like the recorders. Do, do, oh. do. Let's see. I just started my beautiful song. He's. Oh, this is the good one. Okay. I almost forgot about this. This is at the very end of the introduction, right before we go into the Anuma Elish. I don't know if I said that right earlier, but I can see it now, so now it's right. Okay. Okay. We find ourselves vulnerable mortal creatures thrown into a universe bent on our creation and protection and our transformation and destruction. Our attitude toward this ambivalent universe can only take one of two forms, positive or negative. Uh, the precise nature of these two forms, which can be regarded as personalities, and of the background against which they work, constitutes the central subject matter of myth. And, dare it be said, the proper subject matter of the humanities and fine arts. So, what he's saying is, I think this is hugely important for why myths are important. I'd say that's a really good quote. I know, isn't it cool? But yeah, like go ahead, go on, go on. Okay, so we find we're we're vulnerable and we're mortal and we're in this universe that is here to create and protect, but it's also here to transform and destroy. Mm -hmm. um, we can either choose to look at that in a positive way or a negative way, um, <clears throat> and this positive and negative form. Um, or maybe I think it's saying the the creative and destructive forms of the world and the background against which they work constitute the central subject matter of myth. And that last part he adds in parentheses about humanities and fine arts and stories. That's what's in our stories. So let's look at Lord of the Rings as a good example. You've got the good, the creative, that's mm -hmm. people like Gandalf and Frodo. Right. And then you've got the destructive, which is obviously Sauron. Yeah. That's a classic, really easy example of that. Mm -hmm. um, and then, actually, I'll take Frodo out of it. I would call maybe Gandalf and the elves that creative and protective force. Mm -hmm. I'd say Sauron and his army in Mordor are the destructive force. Mm -hmm. And then the knower or the mediator between those two worlds is Frodo. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's kind of like the epitome of the... Uh, the hero's journey that we talked about last episode. Yeah, yeah. You know, the the intermediate being is the protagonist mm -hmm. meeting that wildly spiritually uh, like crazy. What's the mystical? Mm -hmm. That mystical mentor. Yeah. Um. The the known, mm -hmm. the creator, the good, and then learning from that to fight against the destruction and mediate that. In regards to the rest of the civilization, the world of that universe. Yeah. I think that's a really good quote. It's cool. Yeah. So that's pretty much his intro to the myth stuff. Mm -hmm. um, this one last quote here is just here's what he's going to be doing. Mm -hmm. So analysis of a series of myths. Um, this the Let me restart. Analysis of a series of myths, the series which I would argue underlies Western civilization itself, should make these points painfully self-evident. Mm -hmm. So pretty much he's made all these claims in the intro about how myths work and what they do for us and why they're important. Yeah. Now he's going to analyze a bunch of them um, to prove those points mm -hmm. and not only prove them, but make it painfully self-evident that those things are true. Yeah. So by the time we're done with this book, that stuff should be so obvious Yeah. by all of the examples that are out there. And 
Also importantly is that he thinks all of these examples that he's going to use underlie Western civilization itself. So these are the fundamental and most important myths to Western civilization. Dang. You just popped off there. <laughs> Dude, it's so cool. It is cool. And now it's we're really getting cool. into like, we're done with the intro and he's just going to start analyzing myths. Cool. Yeah. I. Uh, what's that? What's the saying? It's not a saying. It's like a thing. Um, evil can't create. It can only destroy. Mm. In reference to like. Like, only the good can create good because evil could only create something bad that would be, like, unpleasant. Sure. So they have to destroy what is good mm. to remove anything that would deter somebody away from evil. Yeah. Interesting. To be inclined to gravitate towards evil. Yeah. So, we'll see. I think that a lot of these stories we can at least relate to our lives now maybe our modern world and see yeah. how it's applicable i don't know how much he's going to try to do that but we'll see how it goes mm -hmm. christian stuff will be interesting to go through yeah we'll have more opinionated discussions probably there oh absolutely but uh i'm ready so yeah we're gonna go through yeah. sumerian stuff egyptian stuff christian stuff okay like uh Taoism in china like yin yang kind oh. Of stuff. oh that'll be cool that'll be really cool yeah dude we're getting into it. Okay. So that's all I got. Cool. Um, well, thanks for joining us for episode five. I know it was kind of a, oh, I just oh, killed nice. the table. Um, what a great way to end the episode. <laughs> thanks for joining us on episode five. It's representative. Um, it is representative of the downfall of, of me <laughs> in this series and how I, I understand less and less as Evan talks more and more. Um, Evan, do you have any anything at all? I'm just excited. Yeah, I'm really excited too. Uh, I hope you like our, for those watching, I hope you liked our blue light that turned green. Um, it's actually because it's foreshadowing the end of the episode. Mm. Bye. Bye.